our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, are you ready for the risk-based tsunami on the horizon? Although it seems that 2030 is a long ways off, that will be the year when CMS will likely mandate that all Medicare patients be in an accountable care relationship with the risk-bearing provider. And if you're a frequent listener to this show, you understand just how seismic this shift to value-based care really is and why we need the right culture, people, and processes fueled by capital to spawn care delivery innovation. It is in this reimagining of care delivery that we can truly reach the aims of improved outcomes, lower costs, better patient experience, and equity for all populations. Joining us this episode are two outstanding leaders in the value movement, Drs. Brian Silverstein and Yates Lennon. And we discuss how organizations should be preparing for the risk-based tsunami on the horizon through care delivery innovation. Dr. Brian Silverstein is the Chief Population Health Officer for Innovacer, which is a leading healthcare technology company committed to helping healthcare care as one. He's an expert in value-based care delivery and health system transformation and has vast experience in helping providers improve population health initiatives. And joining him in this interview is Dr. Yates Lennon, the President of Chess Health Solutions, a population health MSO empowering physicians and health systems to make the transition to value-based care. Dr. Lennon has extensive experience in quality, practice transformation, and physician engagement, and he's been instrumental in teaching health systems and providers across the country how to transform patient care and shift to value-based payment. Well, before tuning in, please keep us in mind if you'd like to go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform. And we'd love to review a five-star rating. And and we love your support and tuning in each and every week uh, with our amazing guests. So let's now hear from two of them, Dr. Yates Lennon and Brian Silverstein, as they join us this week for a special episode of Race to Value. Yates and Brian, guys, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on the show this week. Thank you, Eric. Glad to be here. Eric, totally a pleasure to be here. It's especially uh, uh, brings me joy that I remember you from probably a decade ago at, at one of the NACOS conferences, and it's amazing seeing what you've done since then. 
Well, thank you, my friend. Uh, you know, I was just getting my uh, feet wet in value, and I feel like uh, we've come a long way in value. It's still moving at a glacial pace, but my learning has uh, uh, increased significantly since we initially met. And it's, it's fun what we do here, you know, on the podcast and the Institute. And I've really been looking forward to our conversation today. And we call this podcast Race to Value because we're in a race to make value work. It's a journey. It's a it's a navigation and it's it's marked by different tipping points along the way. And many of our listeners out there, they're trying to figure out the GPS. You know, how do we how do we navigate, you know, the 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 changes and that are underway and create transformation and whole person care and holistic processes and how do we leverage robust data and and get into downside risk models. Yates, I know at Chess, you're really uh, doing incredible work working with ACOs and risk-bearing entities with providers um, throughout the country. I think as a starting point, I wanted to just ask you, and then Brian, of course, I welcome your input. Given what you're seeing in the landscape, how would you stratify you know, many of the organizations that you're seeing out there in the value ecosystem? And for those that are not as mature in uh, adopting uh, value-based payment, what recommendations would you provide them as they make the, the, the next progression in their race to value? Yeah, Eric, thanks. Uh, this is Yates. You know, I think when I uh, just take a look across our landscape, I would say there that most, at least large groups and health systems um, have their foot in the water somewhere in value. Um, there's the the group who entered into the MSSP program originally when it was upside only and you could stay in indefinitely. And it was really nothing more than a plan to test the waters. If we did, if we made money, okay. If we didn't, that was okay too. And you still see because of COVID primarily that there's a lot of folks that are still sort of camped out in that uh, shared savings category, not really either desiring to take on risk or feeling like they're capable of bearing the risk and performing well there. So still a fair amount of risk aversion. I think you've got others who have tried on their own um, and have dabbled in risk, but maybe have gotten burned a little bit and um, are gun shy. And then, then you've got groups that are really all in looking at an all-payer model where they're taking on uh, value agreements, not just shared savings, but taking on risk across the major buckets of you know, commercial, uh, Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare Advantage, and even in the direct-to-employer space. I think if, you know, if I'm thinking about recommendations, I, I have been saying for a long time that you know, it's coming, it's coming, your your options, your days of sitting around and waiting are running out. Again, I think COVID dented that message just a little bit because it did slow the, the journey down, the progression because of the public health emergency and giving providers the option to sit tight for a little while longer. But I still believe the message is true that the day is passing when you'll be able to avoid these models altogether. So it's time to get in and get started. Be careful that you don't build too fast and outpace yourself. Make sure that you've got the capabilities and the tools and technology and probably more importantly, the cultural commitment to value-based care before you launch off the deep end of risk. Gentlemen, I want to follow up on that question by diving into 
this concept of some of the competencies that an organization needs to build to take on the risk. And you know, there's a recent report from Frost and Sullivan that, that was commissioned, Brian, by your organization, Innovacer, and had three takeaways about digital maturity and talked about how organizations with digital maturity are more likely to perform better on competitive metrics. And they established an integrated data platform that's essential to accelerating a, tr a transformation. And as far as outcomes are concerned, they have greater patient and employee retention and engagement metrics. And you know, I think about how far we've come since the days of EHR introduction and meaningful use and, and organizations, you know, assuming that, you know, that was the the epitome of technology for the medical field and, and where we've come since then, and but how much further we need to go to really implement this idea of digital maturity and have that be a backbone of a support structure for value-based care. I'd love for you to share your thoughts about what it is to be digitally mature and some takeaways, you know, some takeaways of, of what you've seen in industry as you compare organizations who are figuring this out and those who are still learning early in the process. Yeah, Daniel, and this is Brian Silverstein. And absolutely, you know, I think that everybody's still figuring it out to some extent. And to the prior question, you know, that Eric and, and Yates were chatting about that when you really kind of elevate it a little bit, a decade ago, when ACOs were in their infancy, you know, the question was, is value real or not real? And are these things a fad or not a fad? So, you know, lots happened in the last decade. And I think now it's been clearly established that value is real. And there's, there's absolutely ways that you can improve clinical outcomes and improve financial outcomes. However, when you look at the progress that we've made as a country, it's, it's very patchy and, and very slow. And the only reason why I say it's slow is because perhaps there was an expectation that it would go faster. I think from, from my point of view, the change does oftentimes take decades. So, so an alternative way is saying, you know what, we're progressing very nicely, and this is just going to be a longer journey. I think one of the reasons why the journey is longer is because of the electronic infrastructure and how the electronic infrastructure works. So when you really get very practical and you say, okay, at a, at, in the office, if there's 25 patients that I'm going to see today, if they're in different value care delivery programs, it's very difficult to be able to know who's in what program, what needs to be done, and that's what creates a lot of chaos. If you look at organizations that only do capitation or value, they have a very different technology stack and, and technology systems that they use that work incredibly well to manage those patients. When you look at all of the health systems, the foundation of the technology stack is the EHR, which is a transaction engine that's amazing for digitizing information and for fee-for-service, but it's not at all set up really to be able to do more sophisticated workflows or to do the different types of analytics as well as operational needs for value care delivery. So we're kind of in this digital, I would call this this middle ground, where one of the impediments to really being successful in these contracts is having the right infrastructure, but it's not always clear what infrastructure you need and how to make it work. Well, gentlemen, as we're, we're talking about the value transformation that's underway, again, I, I just wanna go back to that, that journey you know, the, the, the concept of having to 
traverse the landscape and make important decisions and investments and and realign your care delivery to improve outcomes. And we think about the broader value movement. You know, Brian, when you and I connected years ago, you know, we were really marching towards that triple aim. You know, we want lower per capita cost, better patient experience, higher quality. Then we had the emphasis on well, we need provider wellness. You know, we need to prevent moral injury. We need to have an engaged workforce. And now we're at this moment in time. It's almost a national zeitgeist around elevated awareness, around health inequities. That's some, that's the quintuple aim. That the paramount importance of health equity in the in the broader value movement. Value based care really is the vehicle to eliminate disparities. And CMS is reengineering all the payment models, starting with ACO Reach. In the very foreseeable future, all ACOs are going to have to conduct disparity impact assessments and health equity reports and have a strategic plan around how they're going to tackle some of these significant issues in underserved and marginalized communities. Um, Yates, I'd love to get your perspective on how the new ACO REACH program is going to improve health equity, particularly in underserved communities. Can you speak to you know how we can use this as an inflection point to eliminate health disparities and what actions are, is chess doing right now to, to build a pathway to success uh, to address some of the health equity requirements in ACO reach? Uh, sure, Eric. And I, I think your comment is spot on. I, I think value-based care, and if you want to think even more broadly, uh, population health is perfectly suited to solve the health disparity problems or at least to identify them. And I think it may take creativity to solve some of them. But to me, that's exactly how we want to think about identifying disparities in health is using the tools and technologies that we have available to us through POP Health and value-based care. For our ACR reach as we head in, so 2023 will be our uh, first year participating. And as we head into that year, we're thinking about several different things. And and honestly, much of this work is really already underway. It's going to be a matter of uh, you know, codifying it into the health equity plan once the template's released and uh, we're able to, to submit that. But there's a lot of work already being done with our current participants in what is now MSSP Enhanced this year, but sets them up very nicely for moving into 2023. One of the first areas of importance is access. So when you think about health disparities, I think that's probably one of the first places we go in our minds is making sure that people have access to care. And so uh, Wake Forest Baptist Health, now Atrium Health, Wake Forest Baptist, is working closely with their partnerships with FQHCs in the area, as well as free clinics, just trying to be sure that patients have, and those communities that the, the patients are in, have access to a medical home. Meanwhile, we continue to build a robust annual wellness visit program that outreaches patients using CMA so that we can proactively engage those patients, get them into the system and be seen. But again, making sure that they've got contact points and we're communicating closely with those other resources to build on the digital maturity comment. I think that creates even more impetus to be sure that we're able to pull in different data, disparate data sources so that we get a 360 of those patients. But access to me is always important in value-based care, but I think particularly important when we think about 
trying to address health equity. Quality and outcomes. So again, Atrium Health Wake Forest is, is working today on a set of ambulatory outcomes to um, close disparity gaps, basic screenings, in particular colorectal cancer screening in the African-American population is an area of focus. And it's that has scaled its way up into leadership goals already. Blood pressure management, diabetes management, and they're using a uh, performance improvement approach to develop consistent race, ethnicity, and language data reporting um, as they've, again, EMRs are not perfect, so they're, they're working their way through how to capture that data for patients at the point of care and make sure that we have it in the system so it can be reported on. Also, working with clinic workflows across all their primary care sites, and we are experimenting to some degree with community health workers for patient outreach. So uh, there are a couple of grants that are underway uh, using community health workers. There's a couple of other pilots that are underway to help address some of these gaps in care. Third would be um, acute social needs and social determinants of health. So there are lots of community resources. And I know in my time as a, as a provider, I just was unaware of what was available to patients in the community. So really making sure that we're able to have a robust program, the health system or the provider themselves, and if it's a provider group, should not have to do all of this work themselves. It's a matter of connecting with the resources that are available. So we're developing robust social determinants of health screening processes across all of our programs. Wake Forest has deployed Find Help, which used to be Aunt Bertha. Chess is working with Unitas. So between those two, we get a very um, reliable closed loop referral system around social determinants, uh, connecting with community partnerships and with um, the faith community in our area to be sure that patients' um, social needs are being addressed. A couple of other discrete examples. So there is a a large clinic, it's in downtown Winston-Salem that tends to see mostly dual eligibles, a high percentage of dual eligibles and Medicaid patients. And so there's some um, activity underway there with lifestyle coaching in uh, this population. And already they've seen um, improvement in A1Cs. They've seen that nearly 80% of their patients um, have shown uh, a decrease in their BMI. So already beginning to, again, we just we need to capture these uh, efforts that are already underway across the health system that, that will be participating uh, with us next year in ACO REACH. This is Brian. I was just adding on to Yates's excellent comments there. I, I think when you, you look at what really is, is happening with some of the focus on, on, on health equity, it's a, I think it's a very important recognition that when you think about the ways to improve quality and outcomes, it's not always going to be directly with traditional healthcare. And everything Gates just articulated are all of these other ways of, in essence, looking at a lot of the social determinants of health. And eventually, as payment models shift and migrate, then being able to actually focus in on what's really gonna make patients healthier and change behavior, I think we're gonna to start to see some amazing outcomes. And, you know, and, and all of us know this when you, know, you take a step back 
when, when you have something that's acutely wrong with you and it's complicated, there's no place you'd rather be than in the United States. But if you look at a vast majority of disease, especially chronic disease, we do not do a great job of taking care of patients with chronic disease. And as a result of that, overall, our outcomes are worse. And one of the, the most correlated predictors of outcomes is the zip code you live in. And, and that's just wrong. And, and so we've got to really focus in on how can we bring around the support services so that everyone is able to access high quality care. Right. I, th- I agree, Brian. So true. And I think it's, to me, the value, value-based care is the vehicle to provide the resources to deliver care in that way. The days of thinking that everyone needs to come into the office and sit down and have a, um, a visit with the physician, I think, are behind us. We need to think of creative ways, um, different ways of engaging patients in their community, in their setting. Uh, I think we'll see a, a significant uptick. We are already actually seeing a significant uptick of home-based care, you know, acute as, a well, as well as non-acute settings. Yeah, it's Brian. I love this this vision that you've painted for us, and I can't agree more that uh, you know the priority is to get value based care to support the right care delivery, the right outcomes for all patients. It's not just people in value based care programs. It's it's all patients. And I think about where we are, and oftentimes you hear this idea of provider organization balancing between two canoes when it comes to fee for service and and value based care. And they're in this payment straddle, so to speak, trying to figure out where the fee-for-service curve and the value curves can intersect. And, and we know that as a provider organization, they have to minimize the time in the straddle. Otherwise, they'll go out of business. And But we, we need this uh, tipping point to be realized, really, where the organization and its culture and, and its contracts are all aligned with managing total cost of care for the full population of patients. And so for these organizations out there trying to navigate this journey in a predominant landscape of fee-for-service, what are the top strategies you recommend to provider organizations to, to improve their patient care, to help with the fee-for-service and, and, the, and the value-based care revenue dichotomy and also lay the foundation for value care delivery? Uh, yeah, Daniel, I'll, I'll take a shot at that. And then Brian, I'm sure you can you can weigh in. From our perspective, one of the things that we try to emphasize early in the journey is to take advantage of or leverage the opportunities that you have that bring you benefit in both worlds. Uh, in particular, I think the annual wellness visit can do that. So that's a, a fee-for-service visit. And it allows opportunity for closing coding gaps. It allows to identify and close quality care gaps. And in your chronically ill population in particular, it also is an opportunity to refer patients to chronic care management programs um, if you have those, as well as to do advanced care planning, which is another fee-for-service opportunity that then can impact end-of-life total cost of care. So the annual wellness visit to me is a win in both worlds. I mentioned another one, which is the the chronic care management programs that can help manage chronically ill patients, creates a fee for service revenue, but can also lower your 
um, ED visit and, and hospital inpatient spend. Now, you know, when you're living in that world, that's that rub again. So if you're impacting ED and inpatient utilization from a health system perspective, and that's not always uh, welcomed, but it, it, the idea that uh, I try to convey to physicians and to health system leadership is we're looking to keep people out of your ED and your inpatient beds that don't need to be there, not trying to remove everyone, right? Transitions of care visits, another uh, fee-for-service opportunity that can help reduce readmissions. I don't think there are any hospital administrators that don't want to uh, reduce, if not eliminate, readmissions to the degree possible. Uh, so that's sort of our first approach and is hitting those win-win uh, situations that set you up nicely for success down the road in value-based care. I, I also will come back again here to access. I, I can't emphasize how important I think access is to primary care physicians. Understanding the model, are you closing at Wednesday, on Wednesdays at noon every week and at five every other day of the week? If patients don't have access to care um, outside of normal banker's hours, then we tend to see an increase in an unnecessary utilization. It also prepares patients for that value journey and that they begin to learn and are educated around access to their primary care physician in those off hours. Coding and documentation is another thing that, to me, you, you start early. That's important whether you're in value or not. Right? I understand when you're in value that it impacts the premium dollar that's coming in from Medicare. It is important in value in terms of risk stratifying your patients. But it's also a, an important compliance issue that your coding and your documentation needs to be specific and it needs to be accurate. So getting that started early, even before you're deep into value, I think is important. And closing quality gaps, while if you're not in any value-based agreements, you may not have the data you need to identify and close all gaps, um, but beginning to address quality and making it second nature so that it is just a part of what you do. It's a great opportunity to pull in team-based care to the rescue, so to speak, because uh, so often I think as physicians, we are reluctant to let go of the responsibilities ourselves. But if we will leverage our team and allow our teams to do the work that they are capable and licensed to do, we do that, which we're the only ones licensed to do, then we see quality scores pick up. All of this is true, but it's in the midst of you know very difficult circumstances. Post-COVID, uh, everyone is suffering from the challenge of finding uh, employees' help um, to do this work. Uh, I know it's true in hospital systems, but it's also true in provider offices. And there are a lot of, I've just read an article this week about independent physicians who desperately want to remain independent, but feel as though they're being forced uh, to either sell out and be bought by a larger health system or to just close up shop and, and retire early. And I think that's a, a dangerous place for us to be. There's, especially if we go back and we think about the prior question around ACO reach and health equity, if we lose a significant portion of our independent providers in this process, then that's not going to help us close that disparity gap. Well, I wanted to build upon what you're discussing, Yates, in terms of 
the primary care community. Um, you mentioned a lot of things, but the prevailing theme in value-based care, what we're all hearing and, and understanding to be true is that we have to have a complete transformation of primary care where it becomes holistic, relationship-based, tech-enabled, spans the boundaries of the brick and mortar of the clinic, is out there going upstream, partnering with communities, implementing technologies and predicting risk. And then, you know, to, to your earlier point, providing access to patients, not only for primary care and creating a medical home, but also addressing, you know, behavioral health conditions, you know, looking at pharmacy integration, a multitude of things. All that said, you know, we're dealing with an environment in primary care where PCPs feel marginalized, you know, they're beaten down, they're beleaguered. You know, we've, we're coming out of this pandemic where primary care's lost an estimated 15 billion, about a third of practices have not recovered financially. They're struggling to remain independent. There's many hospitals and private equity physician aggregators that are looking at acquiring them and they want to be able to proceed in the value transformation journey. They don't have deep pockets. They don't have access to capital. They're just trying to figure out how do we go about doing this? And along the way, you know, there's discussions at the federal level about mandating at some point in the very near future, APMs that will have capitation for primary care. There was a really good article that Dr. MyFam had, who's the CMMI founding official, and she talked about the country adopting kind of a hybrid model where we have uh, PCPs and these physician-run ACOs where they do have two-sided risk, but perhaps, you know, as a book of their business, they're paid half through fee-for-service and half on population-based payment metrics. Anyway, there's a lot of different formulas and ways to go about tackling this, but I wanted to ask you both just, you know, what are the advantages and disadvantages of adopting value-based care and an independent primary care practice? And, and what solutions would you recommend for those primary care physician listeners out there that are trying to ameliorate their own suffering and navigate the current landscape? You know, first, if this was simple, everyone would be doing it by now. You know, so let's just take, let's just recognize that this is really complicated. You know, and, and you really do have the best minds in the country trying to figure this out. And, and so this is something that it's really complicated. There's a lot of pieces and components to it. And, and what I'd suggest to you too, is that if there was a solution that worked, everyone would also be doing it. So much of this is local market dependent, and it's more about the art and timing than it is about the actual, here are the specific steps. And, and I think that Yates could tell some great stories where if you move too quickly, there's just as much harm done by moving too slowly or not at all. And there's lots of um, potholes you could fall in here. And what I think it distills down to is trying to balance. It's balancing out what are your capabilities What's the temperature of the providers in your practice? What contracts are available to you? And then based upon your environmental circumstances and factors, what's the right cadence and pace to go at? You know, Yates did a great job of articulating that even if you're not in value contracts, here's a bunch of fee-for-service stuff you could do that's going to bring in additional revenue and allow you to start to build some of the infrastructure for value. So I think that all of those things make all the sense in the world. 
And, and in addition to that, it's kind of taking a step back and saying, really from a navigational point of view, where are we at? Where do we wanna go? What's the right time horizon for us to be able to make some of these moves? Yeah, Brian, I, and the payer, you're exactly right in terms of the local market. And in North Carolina, I think the payer market uh, is very different today than it was 10 years ago when chess first started. Uh, and we built our infrastructure a little bit more quickly than the payers were willing to give us value-based agreements that would support that infrastructure. And so you, you can do just as much harm if you're getting out in front of the payer contracts. Now, today, I think our contracts are more mature in the market and there's more available. But then you come back to the independent physician group, and this is a group I'm really concerned about. And they may not have critical mass to go to a payer and receive an offering for anything other than a pay for performance agreement. If that's all they're able to negotiate, then that's not a sustainable model to really deliver in value-based care. So then they're either going to have to decide, okay, we'll just take this and be happy with it, or I've got to go join a larger health system that has better contracts, or I've got to look to, uh, I'm air quotes around an aggregator, some other third-party entity that can help me pool together lives within a contract. And then at that point, it becomes, okay, what's the pricing model for an independent physician? Can you set it up in such a way that an independent physician group can afford the services? And can you give them access to high quality contracts that will appropriately progress them down the journey towards two-sided risk and hopefully population-based payments, uh, which then can level out their cash flow. And if you can implement the transformation that is needed to deliver in value-based care, then in a capitated uh, or population-based payment model, they've got a steadier cash flow. They know what's coming in. It's more predictable, and they can manage to that a little bit better. And I think that's the you know the the key thing, especially for the independent practices or self-employed, and is really how, what contracts are available. What's the cash flow from those contracts? And then what investments can you make? And timing and pacing, and also putting the investments in the right areas. And, and this is something, it's a continuous challenge to appreciate without a technology solution. The ability that you have to just brute force, take care of patients in a value world is quite limited. And, and this is something that, that part of the benefit of value is that you ultimately want to be able to have a full view of the patient and be able to understand what things are really going to matter to them. And, and that's very difficult to do at scale. And I'd suggest it's almost impossible to do while you're simultaneously trying to optimize your fee for service. And, you know, a comment that Yates made even earlier on, you know, the model of bring them into the office, fee for service is a known model. It burns people out. Patients don't like it, but it fundamentally, you know, it, it it does work. And we're starting to see a crack now where perhaps, you know, it's it it might not work, but it is still working today. So it's very difficult to then say, okay, I'm going to go to this other model. And when you're doing part of each, you're, that means you're doing both of them poorly. 
And, and so just fundamentally running both models simultaneously requires even more sophistication to be able to make it, make it possible for your frontline providers to deliver great care and enabling them because otherwise what we're doing is just burning people out. Gentlemen, I'd like to circle back to a couple of things that we've spoken about a little earlier in this conversation and, and connect them together. Uh, as we're thinking about health equity as an integral objective within value-based care, and we're also thinking about how risk adjustment coding can help identify the burden of illness at the highest level of specificity. There's this combining of these two ideas and this thought that this also comes with compliance challenges and federal scrutiny and scenarios where there's potential upcoding to game a system for favorable benchmarks. And when we're thinking of vulnerable populations and chronic conditions, I'd love to understand the strategies and steps that you recommend providers take in risk-based contracts and specific to improving risk coding and compliance related to documentation for these vulnerable populations. I have a couple of thoughts. First, let me say, I think the, the risk adjustment factor uh, that we all think about when we think about hierarchical condition category coding is probably not totally sufficient. Uh, to date, we don't have social determinants factored in. I think that's a place that we need to go. Um, that works underway. There's Z codes out there, but I don't believe as of yet there's any risk or tied to that. So if we really want to think about vulnerable populations, if we do it in a vacuum from social determinants, then we're missing a big part of the picture. Uh, we certainly can use the RAF score to risk stratify, but I just believe it's an incomplete picture at this point. And again, leaves out what 80% of the impact on health that happens that's not medical care. So anyway, that's more of a, a theory comment. When it comes to thinking about risk coding, risk adjustment coding and documentation and engaging with providers, then to me, it's, it's first about education. It's helping providers understand how HCC coding or risk adjustment coding really helps to drive the success and the ability to care for those patients in the coming year. So it's connecting good patient care to their own financial responsibility for that population of patients. And that's the connection you've got to build. All of the attention on this from the OIG uh, that we all know is happening now and you referenced in your, your comments is all there, but it really boils down to incentives. We need to be sure that we're not putting perverse incentives in place for providers to upcode. But at the end of the day, it's painting an accurate picture of your patient. Uh, my, my analogy is always if, if my description of my patient to the payer, whether that's Medicare Advantage or CMS, it's ultimately CMS, it's a picture of a 75-year-old lady that plays tennis three days a week, but the person sitting in front of me has type 2 diabetes and chronic kidney disease and congestive heart failure. If I've described that tennis player in essence, then I'm not going to have the resources to care for my patient next year uh, if they have all those chronic conditions. So it's first helping providers understand. And I think when you connect it, patient care, their patient's care to the financial responsibility that comes with that in these models, that's critically important. I think EMRs are also a big part of this, but not all EMRs are created equally. And we all know that. 
Um, it's, it's some type of tool and ability to help you identify codes that have been dropped previously that have not been coded this year. So, you know, coding gaps, if you will. And what can be more challenging is when it's appropriate to identify codes that perhaps uh, should be considered and posed in front of the provider in a compliant manner to say, you know, based upon the labs, have you considered CKD stage three? Those kinds of prompts or supports can be critically helpful. What my experience is, there are very few of the EMRs that are available today that do a very good job of helping a provider get to the most specific code possible with a minimum number of clicks. And the more clicks a provider has to perform to get to a specific diagnosis, the less likely you are to get to that specific diagnosis. And building on that, I think this is just, again, another example of where it's very challenging to have the infrastructure optimized for both fee-for-service and value. Because if you're in, in fee-for-service, a lot of the diagnosis codes aren't actually going to change how much you get paid for the service that you provide. However, when you're in value, those things matter more than anything that you, of course, accurately code up. There's no chance here, I think anyone is going to suggest that you do anything but accurately code patients. With inaccurate coding, there's so much opportunity and, and it matters because once, you know, those patients get identified correctly with their diseases and conditions, that accurate coding then in the right organization enables a whole host of support services that will get the better outcomes. But again, it's, it's difficult to do this partially or for some patients or not for others. Yeah, that's right. And I think the other thing too, for, in terms of compliance, Daniel, is anytime you have a coding and documentation uh, improvement or a coding and documentation integrity program, it is equally important uh, to remove codes that are no longer applicable as it is to add new ones. So that, that to me is a critical piece. If your program lacks any emphasis at all on removing in our outdated or no longer applicable codes, then you're you're missing and setting yourself up for possible scrutiny. And you know, to your other comment, uh, Brian, about specificity and and not really making a difference in fee for service. I think this is very true for FQHCs. Uh, you know, they have a per diem rate, and for years. Code, the, the diagnosis code itself just didn't matter that much to them. So helping to change that mindset can be very challenging. Uh, and if the EMR is not uh, helpful in getting quickly to a more accurate code, then that creates a problem. And that's where point of care tools, whether it's embedded with an EMR, if it's a good one, or if it's an overlay or a you know, third-party vendor that sits inside or on top of the EMR to provide that coding support can be very helpful. And I think that that's really the kind of the, the other piece that, that doesn't oftentimes get emphasized enough is that when you make it hard for people to do something, they're not, it's less likely to happen. And, and so when you make it easy, it's more likely to happen. And and this is something that there's no question, EMRs have tremendous benefits 
to American healthcare. And it's fantastic that everybody's moved to EMRs and digitized. However, EMRs and digitization is really the beginning, not the end state. And if you look at every other industry, there's always going to be transaction engines that exist. It's very rare that the transaction engines are the what people are actually doing their work in. You know, for example, in, tra in the travel industry, there's the Sabre system that was originally developed by American Airlines. Now it's a separate uh, publicly traded entity. And, and the Sabre system is that transaction engine that allows all the travel stuff to work. Nobody logs into Sabre. Well, I, I should restate that. There's operations people, I'm sure that do, but as a end user, I'm not logging into it. And 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 that's one of the things that, that we've got to appreciate is that it's the comment that Yates made. All EMRs aren't the same, and not just beyond the EMR, the tech stacks aren't the same. And, and so you really have to take a step back and say, how can we make this really easy for the front desk staff, for all of the providers, for the nurse, for the whole care team to be able to take care of this patient and fo focus more around taking care of the patient rather than collecting codes for fee-for-service billing? Well, Brian, you know, you, you make me think about how far we've come along in, in digitalizing electronic health records. And even though we have that in place through meaningful use and what we've seen over the last decade, you know, uh, you know, to your point, EHR systems are built on a chassis that's there to support transactional fee-for-service care delivery. Nonetheless, it is an accomplishment. But, you know, to, you know, to your point, we have to make things easy. You know, I'm thinking about the innovation also that has to take place in the payment models. And we have not seen the pace of payment model adoption and value-based care like we have with adoption of EHRs. And, you know, how do we make it easy? Well, I guess the, the only way to go about it is to mandate payment models. And we've seen, you know, going back to 2015 when Sil Sylvia Burwell, who was then HHS secretary, you know, she sent a shockwave out to the industry saying that at least 90% of traditional fee-for-service payments to Medicare were going to be tied to quality by 2018. It didn't happen. Now we have the goal of 2030 that CMS has established throwing down the gauntlet once again, saying that 100% of traditional uh, fee-for-service Medicare beneficiaries will be tied to accountable care relationships. Uh, CMS, as we all know, is the gatekeeper for the value movement. You know, they're setting up the goalposts. They're the model to which uh, all other uh, payers are going to follow. So I, I just wanted to kind of, you know, get you both to engage on this concept around payment model innovation. How fast do we need to go? Or do we need to start looking at mandated models to wholly replace traditional Medicare fee-for-service? Is that the right thing to do? I'd love to get your insights on that. Yeah, so so I think that if again this is one of these, um, if there was a simple thing, it, it would have already happened. And this is a this is multi-level complex chess. And part of it is if you're a payer and you're coming up with a value care delivery model, if you make your model look like the other payers' models, then you've somewhat given away a differentiator in the marketplace to your customer, which oftentimes is the employer. So, so by design, payers want their models to be different. Now, if you're the provider, each of these payers has different models. 
you've just now created a whole host of complexity. And then even in the case of where CMS, CMMI, when when you look at what's happening with their models, you know, they're they're certainly I think doing an amazing job of evolving, saying how can we get these models to really move faster, do the right thing. That being said, in some cases, you know, you look at how much Medicare Advantage has grown. And and from CMS's point of view, they've now transferred that risk. But in many Medicare Advantage plans, they're still paying providers fee for service, a percentage fee for service. So even though it's moved, it might not have really moved. Yeah, and Brian's absolutely right. It's a complex problem and not one easily solved. And a question I'm not sure is easily answered, but I think I will try to answer it easily. <laughs> that is that I really don't think mandating this move is the right thing to do right now. And in large part, it goes back to what we've talked about earlier, and it's the concern around the independent provider mandating that they move into an alternative payment model could be the straw that broke the camel's back, I'm afraid, for many of them that would say, I'm done. I just can't do this anymore. Um, I think the bet, so I'm a big believer in the carrot philosophy as opposed to the stick, save the stick as long as you can. Um, if we can create models that are attractive to providers because they incent the right behaviors, I think when value-based care is is happens the way it's supposed to happen and you have the support that you need for providers and their patients and they can feel that literally in the course of a day, they can know that, oh, you know what, I can send a message to my care navigator or I'm, a, I'm having difficulty getting this patient's A1C below 10. I think I'll con consult my pharmacist. If they can feel the, the system, the value-based care system, the value-based care infrastructure supporting them in that way, then I believe it's the way most of us want to practice. And it's what we maybe thought we were getting into. Uh, without being able to describe it as long ago as I went through med school, nobody knew what population health was back then. But I do believe that we can create a model that's sustainable and that's attractive to providers and patients appreciate it. I know over the course of the last several years, I hear patient story after patient story of circumstances. I think if in my career, if I had been faced with that dilemma, Number one, I might not have ever known about the problem because I would not have asked the questions because I knew when I got the answer that I was likely to receive, I did not have the ability to connect the patient to the resources. I couldn't solve the problem. And I sometimes think, <laughs> shame on me, but at the same time, I think it, I'm not the only one that's been in that situation. So if we go down this the 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 path of mandating, I think we could make our provider, or particularly our primary care shortage worse. The, the better way to me is create models that are sustainable and help providers live in that world so that they can realize less burnout, understand that their patients are better cared for in the white spaces between those uh, visits in the office, which you know, in general fee-for-service medicine, there's little to no care delivered between an office visit.
and in, in value-based care, we can do that. Gentlemen, you brought up a topic that I'd like to dive into a little further, and that's the Medicare Advantage. And we know as a private, you know, as a private sector alternative to traditional Medicare, it was designed by Congress two decades ago to provide better care at lower cost. And by next year, more than half of Medicare recipients will be in a private plan. However, eight of the 10 biggest Medicare Advantage insurers, they represent more than two thirds of the market, and they've submitted inflated bills according to federal audits. And you identified another challenge with Medicare Advantage. So my question for you is, to what extent do opportunities exist to abuse or use rightfully value-related plans? And what would be your key recommendations to reduce this negative impact on a larger value-centered systemic improvement? Well, that's a challenge. I, I think probably the, the thing that comes to my mind first is uh, what we've already talked about, and that's risk adjustment coding. I, I think many of the payers uh, have programs in place to look for um, reasons to add codes. And I think there's good evidence that that's happening as well. So more scrutiny, more oversight, perhaps um, a little more attention uh, on the payers as opposed to the providers in the area of uh, compliance with coding would be one um, place I would say that that needs to start. And, you know, Daniel, I appreciate the question. And I think that there's always going to be in anything at times, either bad actors or, you know, uh, things that get interpreted multiple different ways. And I guess from my vantage point, you know, what I would say is, in general, Medicare Advantage is a good program. In general, the beneficiaries that are in Medicare Advantage plans, they vote with their feet. And, and if you look year after year, a super majority of them stay in their plans. And if they do switch, they're typically switching to a higher quality plan. And so by and large, there's, and the plans, because the plans are getting paid up per member per month, as opposed to fee for service, in most cases, all the things that we discussed earlier, you know, Yates is talking about the pharmacist, the social worker, the community health worker, all of these different things they really make a difference in people's lives. Medications are so confusing. And it, you know, diet and nutrition is a problem, transportation. There's all of these basic things that, that really are significant impediments to care. And, and in fact, in a fee-for-service world, if you're providing transportation and you're not part of a value program, you're, you're inducing services. I'm a very big proponent of the value programs and appreciate that you know, sometimes people do stuff they, they shouldn't, or there's a variety of different circumstances that suggest that these are, you know, legitimate concerns. We need to work through them and, and keep going forward. And also agreeing with what Yates is saying that we don't want to, the more you, you mandate something, the more challenge and resistance you get. I, I view it more as create opportunities, let people get drawn in, have them willingly choose and see the success, and that's going to produce a more sustainable model. Yeah, and don't let my previous answer mislead you. I, I too believe the Medicare Advantage programs are very strong programs. I have my mother and my mother-in-law, both are Medicare Advantage patients and have uh, plans that 
Brian said it, they vote with their feet, they go to the, the higher quality plan. Uh, I just do think, you know, coding is one area where I know there's been some issues in that space. And that's where I would love to see the coverage of this shifting from, you know, this, the coding and some of the things that either intentionally or oftentimes accidentally, you know, people do that's wrong to look at all the great outcomes that patients are getting. And, and also of the people who at times aren't getting good results in Medicare Advantage plans, oftentimes they're still contracting fee for service with the providers. So let's look at, you know, you know, and, and Yates participates in a range of programs. So he's in, you know, in REACH, he's in the MSSP and Medicare Advantage. So a whole host of different things. And, and recognizing that, you know, it's not about being in one program. It's about really coming up with enough programs so you can get the density, putting the infrastructure in place and, and look at all the great things that you could do for patients and get these great outcomes for them and then have it also financially work. I mean, this is, this is something that I don't think there's enough of a focus on is that as elusive as it is, and as much as we debate about the canoes and the migration, it's taking a step back and recognizing there are organizations that are squarely focused in value. They're doing great work, helping patients out and getting great financial outcomes. And, and so let's highlight that this is possible. And it's just a question of timing, pacing, and getting the right infrastructure to move in those directions. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the dangers to me in this particular conversation is that too often I think we regulate to inhibit the bad actors and the unintended consequences. We put burdensome regulations on folks who are trying to follow the rules. I, I think a perfect example of that is the three-day, three-night requirement for a sniff stay. You know, we can get around that with the waivers and the, the risk-based MSSP programs. We avoided it, or we had the waiver in next gen and we'll have the waiver in reach. But that rule ends up uh, causing problems, unintended problems, because a patient who could benefit from, from, from skilled nursing therapy, but doesn't really need or qualify for an inpatient stay can't get to the skilled nursing facility because they haven't had a three night stay. So they fall at home and break their hip and end up in the hospital and then go to the skilled nursing facility. To me, that's just one example of where we've tried to over-regulate to avoid people abusing the system. And then the people who could benefit are, are now unintentionally impacted. And this is something that that I think it's a it's a great reminder that at times we need to elevate. And in other examples in Medicare, home-based infusions. So, you know, home-based infusions aren't covered for, and, and, and certainly appreciate that there's a lot of fraud and abuse. And so at times you have to create these policies that they're, they inhibit patient care, but are necessary for fraud and abuse. But I view them as signals that, you know what, maybe that payment mechanism isn't the right one that we should be doing in totality. And, you know, the three-day is another perfect example that we have a lot of things in place to try and avoid fraud and abuse, where if we can migrate to that total cost of care model, then, it, then a lot of those issues just go away. Well, Brian, that's well said. And Yates, I really appreciate your perspective as well. And, you know, as we finish up our conversation today, I thought it would land the plane and kind of build 
off of what you're saying and really summarizing also what we've been talking about the last hour, you know, we clearly are in a, in a race to make value work. This is a journey. It's not easy. There's going to be a transformation underway. We have to make transformative digital investments to build more mature risk-bearing organizations. We've got to be able to integrate data from EHRs and other IT silos. We got to look at wearables, remote monitoring, telehealth, pharmacy, social determinants. We have to address health equity. We have to have analytics-driven workflows, care management, risk stratification, patient engagement, on and on and on. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I just think about the totality of all of this. It's clearly a, a transformation, but it's something that the industry needs to prepare for. And, you know, I was uh, reading a recent report from Morning Consult, which was uh, commissioned by Innovacer, and they took a look at the state and science of value-based care. And there was a term that was used that, that said, you know, get ready for that risk-based tsunami. It's on the horizon. And it, and it was just such a powerful uh, descriptor of what we're facing as, as an industry. We know the, the macroeconomics necessitate a transition into uh, value-based payment models. We know we have to get better at equity and addressing chronic disease. So all that said, you know, gentlemen, I wanted to ask you uh, just in your, you know, if you could provide some parting comments for leaders out there that are trying to figure out, you know, how do I lead, you know, to the highest level of uh, performance and, and addressing the moral and economic imperatives that are in front of me? How do I address my fiduciary responsibility to guide my organization? How do I make these right decisions? That are going to that are going to help my organization be viable. You know, could you provide maybe a, a quick parting thought on uh, really what leaders in value based care should be thinking about as we head into this new era? I think it's continuing to try to. Unfortunately, I think it's continuing to try to balance the two worlds while you push hard to move to the value based world. Uh, I believe it's about building relationships with all the key stakeholders within your health systems or your provider groups to make that journey that usually in a large health systems involves the CFO, it, uh, uh, the finance team. It also involves the contracting team and your operations team. I think we're a long ways away from seeing most major health systems have perfect alignment. But if you can begin to get some small wins, show your medal, uh, show your successes, and connect it all back to the impact you're making on patients' lives, then you can leverage the moral imperative to do this. I think Yates really touched on something there, the, the moral imperative. And, and just to appreciate for a second that I think what he is doing at Chess is one of the most successful models to get there. And, and part of this is make it easy. Bring the ability to succeed in these models. Assess your payer environment because it's going to be different in each marketplace. And based upon the payer environment, then make it easy for the people who are taking care of the patients to do the right thing. And then if you do that, you're going you're gonna to succeed. And part of this is recognizing not everybody is going to want to be the innovator, want to be first, want to practice this way, but it's the ones that want to work with them and make their lives better, make it easier for them, and then you're going to get great patient outcomes.
Dr. Brian Silverstein, Dr. Yates Lennon. Gentlemen, it has been an absolute pleasure being with you this week on the Race to Value podcast. Thank you very much, Eric. Daniel, very much enjoyed the, spending the time with you all and Brian this afternoon. Eric, great, great to be connected with you after all these years, still, still working on, on it. And I think we're making great progress. So we don't necessarily, you know, let's, let's not, let's, let's reframe our horizon. So that race to value, it's, it's a longer race and we're making good progress. And so an honor to be with you, to be with Daniel and, and Yates, always a, always a pleasure to, to have any conversation with you. You as well. So inspired, you know, there's, there's hope for the future. We can figure this out and we'll, we'll get there in the race to value gentlemen. And again, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. 